WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Uh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. All right, Latif, if you can rewind your mind back to a time when your life wasn't dominated by Alan Funt and Candy Camera, like how did how did this start? So I first, I, I did, uh, unlike a lot of people, I did not grow up watching Candid Camera. I had never heard of Candid Camera when I was a kid. You, you never had never heard, heard of, of Candid no. Camera? No. Wow. Well, no. How, how, Have you heard of the Declaration of Independence? That ring any bell? <laughs> uh, did Alan Funt write that? No, but it's sort <laughs> no. of, he's up there. And it's a okay. very he's, noticeable. He's in it. Co- okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. One of, yeah. He is actually, uh, no, no BS, a, a founding father in a way. Uh, of, of a different um, sort. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krilowich. This is Radio. Lab well, when you least expect whoa. it, you're expected. You're the one today. Okay, just to set that up. So there used to be a time in our media history where, like, the line between show and life was really clear. But along came a guy named Alan Funt who muddied that line in a way that was fascinating and would bite him in the butt. In fact, uh, spiritually speaking, I think those bite marks are on all of our butts. So check your tush <laughs> and listen to the story from our producer Latif Nasser. So I first heard about Candid Camera a few years ago, and I, when I did, I just dove in deep. Like, I just binged <laughs> all of—I I watched every single clip I could get my hands on. And then that's around the time when I found out that it started as a radio show, which was huh. even more interesting to me. Because I was like, a radio show? I was like, well, like, how does that even make sense? Like, what is that even—what would that be? So I called up one of the few people who have studied this. <laughs> That's right. Um, So I'm Jacob Smith. An associate professor at Northwestern University's School of Communication. And the director of Northwestern's Masters in Sound Arts and Industries. And it turns out there's this kind of wonderful, kind of creepy backstory. Do you just want to start with World War II? Yeah. So during World War II, Alan Funt was working in the Signal Corps. Signal Corps is known as the nerves of the Army. The, uh, the kind of communications arm for the armed forces at that time. So Funt, he's uh, a few years out of college by this point. He is stationed in Oklahoma at Camp Gruber. And his job there is to make radio shows. For the armed forces radio. One of these, these shows is called The Gripe Booth. The Gripe? G-R-I-P-E? The Gripe Booth. Yeah. Basically, the show worked like this. Funt would get soldiers stationed at the camp to come into his studio. And talk about their gripes. About, like, their barracks and about the food and about, you know, their girlfriend is cheating on them back home or whatever. You know, things that were bothering them. It's not a very good idea for morale. Oh, I think it's a great idea for morale. Really? I would imagine it would bring the soldiers down. It would bring them down, but maybe it would bring them together. Fair enough. Anyhow, so he's bringing these soldiers into his little recording studio. And one of the things that he found was that as soon as the red light would go on to indicate that recording was going on, they'd clam up. They would get tongue-tied. This idea was actually called mic fright. Mic fright. 
Mike Fright. And and he tells these stories about how it was amazing to see these soldiers who would go out into battle without maybe blinking an eye, but break into a cold sweat at the thought of sitting in front of a microphone. So, so what's he do? what does he do? Well, so his solution was to disconnect the red light and record them secretly. So basically he'd bring them in and say, okay, let's just do a practice round. Let's just talk over the things, you, the kinds of things you will talk about just for practice. <laughs> uh-huh. And then when then finally they were ready to start, he'd be like, no, no, I already got it. He would get better material when they didn't know they were being recorded. Would they be okay with that? Like, so, well, you or he just, would get like... permission afterwards. So is that a lie? No, I don't think it's a lie anymore. It's a sort of truth deferred, you might say. <laughs> But according to Jacob Smith, Funt was like, this is a great trick. Yes. You know, the red light goes off in the gripe booth, but a red light goes on in Funt's mind. And so after the war, he pitches this idea as Candid Microphone. The Candid Microphone. Which goes on the air on ABC in 1947. The program that brings you the secretly recorded conversations of all kinds of people as they react in real life to all kinds of situations. No one ever knows when he's talking into the candid microphone. <clears throat> <clears throat> all right, so <clears throat> this is Sonny Fox. <clears throat> And he was one of the original guys to work with Alan on Candid Microphone. And it just so happened, when he came into our studio, we managed to catch him on our Candid Microphone. Can you hear me? I can. Uh, that is tepid water. Tepid water. I'm, I'm sorry the water's not... Uh, you know, not to my liking. Up to snuff. Yes. Yeah. And <clears throat> my standards. Why is my throat so tight? See, that's the tepid water now. All of a sudden, <clears throat> it seems not so... Uh... Bourbon would have helped. <laughs> All right. Okay. We're here to talk about much more exciting things, I think. So when you were working with Alan on Candid Microphone, what was he like? Like, how did you see him? Like, he... Alan was a very able, very bright young guy. He had a face of an everyman. These big chipmunk cheeks. Rather short and a little plump. Probably was about 5'10". And uh, he could charm you when he wanted to. Charm you right out of your shoes. Or he could be... This wildly maniacal, overwrought person. I mean, he had this huge temper. Sonny says when they were just starting the show, sometimes Alan would get so mad. That he would throw things sometimes. Like fling pencils at other producers. Well, there were only four of us and the secretary. That was it. That was the core of what we did. And we all had to do everything. I mean, Alan... The man with the hidden microphone may even get around to you someday. That man was Alan. Alan was the arbiter, obviously, of whether we did something or didn't do something. So what was, like, what was the goal for the show? The goal was to, you know, was to reflect people as they are in their unguarded moments. We try to bring you the real McCoy on Candid Microphone. That's what fascinated Fun, the beauty of everyday conversation. We go out of the studio into the world. Everyday life. Capture our candid glimpses of people like you. What the sociologist Irvin Goffman calls bugging the backstage, right? <laughs> so what we would do is... Every day, Sonny and crew would go to their office in Manhattan. This two-room office. Sit down at their desks. And think up ideas, separately scratching our heads and say to Alan, what about this? How about you? I gotta shave every day. If I don't shave, my wife gets right after me. Like, what if we bugged a barbershop or a magazine stand? Oh, maybe that's something we could, you know... Did you see those green shoes? Or... Green? A restaurant or a shoe store. I don't know where to get... 
So what they do is they take this big, clunky, portable recorder. It was like a suitcase. It weighed, I think, maybe 60 pounds, but they put a handle on top and said it's portable. (laughs) He says that they would lug around this massive suitcase to wherever it was they were recording, and and they try to hide it so that no one would see it, so they could record this tape, which they did. In all these different locations, including the women's bathroom. I don't know what to say to them. I really don't. Uh, but by and large, uh, the tape they gathered... Funt was disappointed to discover that it was the most uninteresting garbage you could imagine. <laughs> yeah, it was frustrating. It doesn't have, you know, the nice shape, the rise and fall, the climax that um, is going to keep listeners hooked. Now, that presented us with a neat problem. They had a half-hour show. Primetime. That they needed to fill. Here's how desperate I was. I was having a date my yeah. first date with a young woman. Yeah. I bugged my car and tried to see how she would sound <laughs> on a first date. She found out about that. It was not amused, and that was the last date. Wait, how did it go, though? Uh, it was not very interesting. <laughs> you got to that point where anything was, you were so desperate to get stuff that you did unlikely things like that. So here they had this show that was supposed to be about real people, real talk, everyday conversation. But turned out that sucked. So then the question became how can we mix it up? How can we stir it up? How can we um, change this into something more spectacular? And that's when Alan Funt added a little wrinkle. It's something that Jacob Smith has called... I was calling it the Ryle. So the basic idea of the Ryle is that instead of just letting people yammer on, which didn't seem to work, you got to get in there. You got to juice the action to get that right shape. The man with the hidden mic had a good one when he dropped into a tailor shop. What you start to hear in Candid Mike is like these strange situations. Like he, he would go into a tailor shop with a microphone up his sleeve and he would ask the guy. I have to have a suit of clothes made up for a kangaroo. A kangaroo, that's right. Oh, you can handle Like, here's another one. Play the moaning trunk. This is Sonny's favorite. He says that uh, one day they called a mover to come over to their office to move this trunk. Be a little careful with it now. Okay. And inside the trunk, the mover didn't know this, was a guy. And his job was to sound eerie. To basically moan every time the mover tried to move that trunk. Just be very gentle with it, will you? Oh. What is it? Never mind. Just, Just take it. Well, it makes that noise. I want to know. No, 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 that's nothing. Just, just forget about it. I'm laughing now. Come on, hurry up. We've been trying to get rid of this thing since well, last night. what is it? I don't know what it is. Never mind. Deliver it to 180. All right, uh, give us a slip. What do you mean a slip? I want to have a signature that I delivered there. I want to have a signature signed for that. Make out a slip for them, man. The, the, Phil got off such great moans. <laughs> the classic format that worked for Alan was getting people into situations Tell us what it is. where they were frustrated. No, it's none of your business what's yeah, in the Yeah, but it makes that kind of noise. There's no noise. You don't hear anything. What do you mean I don't hear anything? Come on, Phil. We've been waiting since last night. Let's get this thing out of here. And it just keeps going and going and going. It gives me the creeps that handles when I don't know oh, what it is. Oh, come on. Don't be silly. What Never is. mind what it is. Just driving them nuts. What's in a trunk? Until finally... <laughs> Here's your $20. They look for another truck, man. They lose their temper. And we get, cue the music. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the climax. That's the closure. Now the whole thing has a shape. It it starts slow and then crescendo, 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 boom. He's inventing this new kind, a new format of entertainment. 
It sounds totally obvious, but this is basically like reality TV in a nutshell. Like, this is one of the first times where you have that familiar hybrid of, of this highly artificial and constructed situation, but then inside of it... A snippet of life. We've all been there. Situations where we've been frustrated, where we don't understand what's going. You know, situations where we're bewildered. So Funt would start pushing this format. Tweaking it, changing it. Trying out new permutations. And sometimes it's very much like a fly on the wall. You know, there are these, these um, kind of poignant segments of listening to... Tom? Tom, it's time to get up. A wife trying to wake up her husband. Darling, uh, the clock rang 15 minutes ago. Yeah, that one's kind of beautiful. Uh, uh-huh. It's a producer, Matt Guilty. So intimate is what's so incredible. Right. You've got a lot to do today. You're supposed to be in early. In this one, Funt got the wife to be in on the gag. Come on, darling. You can't keep this up. Don't store anymore. Well, if you're up, why not? All right, I'll, listen, I'll be up. Just leave me alone, will you, please? Will you please get up? Will you please go away and lose yourself, honey, please? Tom, I think if you take a shower, you'll feel good. I don't like you talking to me that way. Once and for all, I insist that you get up out of this bed. All right, then. I'm up. I'm away. Well, let's see you move. It's very late. It's 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock! So, you know, you get this beautiful backstage glimpse of everyday life, but where do we stop? And obviously it did prompt letters. A few hisses and catcalls. Have you heard the one where I was just listening to it the other day where um, where a listener writes in to complain about that one? Yeah, yeah, that was actually really cool. Well, yeah, but keep... tell us, tell, t- tell us about it. Well, so one lady took us at our word and wrote us a few well-chosen ones that really made our ears burn. She's writing in to complain that this was, you know, crossing a line. So what Funt does is he goes up to her door to talk to her, but he goes with a hidden mic. Uh, I'm with the American Broadcasting Company, and I wonder if I could have just a couple of minutes of your time. Is that all right? Yes. Uh, you wrote us a letter the other day about one of our programs called The Candid Microphone. And uh, I gather from your letter that you don't like it very much. No, I don't. Well, uh, why? what are some of the things you find objectionable about it? Well, I don't like it because I think it's snooping. Out and out snooping. Out and out snooping. Is that right? Mm-hmm. In your letter, you said... You said a little. You said it a little more strongly. You said you thought we were a bunch of dirty, sneaking spies. Well, um, I suppose at the time when I was listening to the program, I felt that way. You get these people in their homes extemporaneously. I heard that one program uh, about the what was it? Uh, you went into some man's bedroom. Oh, you mean the one where, where the wife uh, awakened the husband? Awakened the husband, and there was the poor fellow. He didn't know he was talking for, speaking for uh, the public. It sort of put him in a bad light, don't you think? Well, you may have something there, but don't you think it's funny the sounds a man makes when he awakens? Yes, they're funny, but they're only for him, though, in his own bedroom. And I'm sure he doesn't enjoy having the whole world know about it. Do you? Well... Would you? Don't you think most people are nervous and self-conscious in front of a microphone? Not anymore. I think most people take to a microphone very nicely. Do you feel you talk just about the same way if you know you you knew you were talking right to a microphone may... right now? Yes, I would. There'd be no difference whatsoever. No difference. Well, now look. Let me show you. This is a microphone, mm-hmm. and what you've just said is is ready to go out from coast to coast. Does that make any difference to you? What am I supposed to do at this point? <laughs> 
faint dead away. <laughs> you, do you mind our coming in here and talking to you this way? Do you think we took an unfair advantage of you? I think so at the moment. This conversation may not be worth a nickel, but would you like to have it on the air? Yes. You would? Of course I would. Because I want the whole world to know yeah. of my opinion on this program. Oh my God, that's amazing! She just switched. Exactly, and 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 you can hear in her voice this this weird tension, right? I have this one advisor. Uh, her name is Jill Lepore. She has this idea. I'm I'm bastardizing it, but to put it crudely, like we all kind of have these two drives. One drive for privacy. We don't want people in our bedrooms listening to us. That is the height of creepiness. And then on the other hand, we have this drive for publicity. It's exciting to be the star, and it's exciting to have people pay attention to you. And these two drives, the drive for privacy and the drive for publicity, are sort of competing in us. So coming up, that tension... Well, it just takes off. Literally, actually. Literally, <laughs> yes. it takes off. Yes. Yeah. And it gets super interesting. Yeah. That's after the break. I'm Jad Abumran. I'm Robert Kulwich. Stay with us. This is Josh LaRush calling from Los Angeles. Radiolab is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Science reporting on Radiolab is supported in part by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Radio Lab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, a young writer attaches himself to a rising star in politics named Barack Obama. Interesting guy. Speaks in what sound like paragraphs. Very good posture, that guy. Enviable posture. <laughs> I am a writer, and I have this, this very slight hunch. And he has none of that. A political coming-of-age story from staff writer Vincent Cunningham, plus actor and director Bradley Cooper, all on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. Let's get back to our story from a producer, Latif Nasser, about Alan Funt, the man with a hidden microphone. Where we left off, he had just made a radio show called Candid Mike. Well, so is it, it did, in fact, people like this program? Was it a hit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it moves pretty quickly to television. Candid camera. 
with Alan Funt. In the spring of 1949, the show premieres on NBC. Welcome to the Candid Camera program. And the show, it's the exact same premise. Set up weird or frustrating situations, try and catch people's reactions. But when the show goes out on TV... And here's the man who someday... According to Jacob Smith, it just doesn't catch on. A lot of viewers think that it's mean-spirited, that the subjects are being somehow um, mistreated. There were critics who were very unnerved and upset by it. There were people, certainly. But well, what did the critics say? Oh, man, I made a list here of of a whole bunch of the criticisms from the 40s and 50s. <laughs> and they're great. They're like so, <laughs> like they're so sweeping. So, okay, so, um, so there was this one guy in The New Yorker, this is in 1950, um, who said, and I love this, I love this. For my money, Candid Camera is sadistic, poisonous, anti-human, and sneaky. (laughs) Uh, Wait, there was another, hold on, there was another kind of great string of adjectives. Let me just find it. Um, There's so many of these. Here, uh, another guy, different guy from The New Yorker. He he found uh, Alan Funt coarse, nagging, suspicious, and misanthropic, and to make matters worse, zestfully so. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But I mean, I think that becomes kind of a PR problem that he has to fix. And according to Jacob Smith, it was not a small problem. No. When it first aired, and even all through the 50s, the show... It's on and off. ...doesn't really get its audience. It moves around different networks. And all the while... He's um, tweaking it. Uh, and changing it, adapting it. And in the early 60s, he hits on something. A second little tweak that would make all the difference. Funt's term was the reveal. The reveal. Now, he'd done it here and there, but by 1962, he locks it in. You start to see this thing happen over and over at the end of segments. It's it's so commonplace now that it, it seems crazy someone even had to invent it. Classic reveal is, let's say, uh, the gag is in a diner and they're serving this guy a tiny little teacup. Hey, what is this? And he wanted a big coffee mug, and they serve him this tiny little teacup. Oh, come on. And he's like, what? What's going on? Is this your idea of a cup of coffee? So this guy gets pissed off. And, and previously, Funt would have let that keep going. But now, right as the guy is about to blow, Funt either walks out himself or he sends someone out, and they, they kind of grab the guy, and they're like, See the camera in there? <laughs> they show him the hidden camera on camera and as he's looking at that hidden camera and he's like huh the camera zooms in on his face and and jacob smith says that sometimes fun would would even actually have to hold people in place for that very moment because one of their first reactions are to turn away or to cover their face so he would sometimes have to physically restrain them and turning them towards the camera so that they can capture that one fleeting moment and in that moment, you see so much on their face. They're, they're angry, they're embarrassed, they're ashamed, they're confused. They, they don't know how to feel. And, and then right at that moment, Funt says the magic words. Smile, Smile you're, you're on handed camera. camera. And it's all, everything's absolved Everything all of a sudden. Everything is made okay in Everything that is made okay. And then the chorus goes, when you least expect it, you're detected, you're the star today. Smile. You're, You're on, on candid camera. camera. Yeah. Here I am on television. <laughs> something, something. Hocus pocus. You're in Dumb focus. Hocus, yes. It's your lucky day. It's your lucky day. 
That's interesting. So it went from being like, ooh, you've been creeping by the yeah, yeah, yeah. to like, oh, thank you, uh, thank Alan Funt. Yeah. And this works much better, I take it? Yeah, it was hugely successful. It was one of the top ranked shows from basically all of the early 1960s. Millions, if not tens of millions of people watched it. Uh, and I think part of the reason why was that without that sort of meanness, they had bled out the meanness, and people could now sort of freely see it as what it really was, which were these kind of little peepholes into human nature. Like, the first one I ever saw was the the elevator sketch. Do you know the elevator sketch? No, walk me through it. Oh, the elevator sketch, it's just really simple. It's really simple, and it's so beautiful. The gentleman in the elevator now is a candid star. Basic setup is, guy walks into an elevator, there's a hidden camera, he doesn't know it. Here's a fella with his hat on in the elevator. He is like everybody else wearing his overcoat and a hat, and he stands in the middle of the elevator, and then um, all of the other people in the elevator, who we later learn are Confederates, uh, uh, they... Um, they take off their hats. Take off their hats, and... One by one by one. One hat off, two hats off, five hats off. <laughs> You're watching him through the open elevator door, and he's just... Just sort of standing there awkwardly, and then he just sort of little by little, <laughs> hesitantly, as he just takes off his hat and then holds it in front of his, you know, chest. And now, do you think we could reverse the procedure? Watch. Then all of the people around him, they put their hats back on. <laughs> and then, and then he sort of is looking around, and, and like it's almost it's happening at this it's somewhere between conscious and subconscious level, and then he sort of just puts his hat back on. It's really funny. It's really, really funny. And this funny. guy wasn't in on it? He was not no, in on it. He no. clearly just was trying to to fit in in this weird way. It's interesting, though. Like, I never watched the TV show uh-huh. when I was young. But it's weird. Like, we, uh, when I was seven, we still, we would say all the time, like, smile, you're on candid camera, even though I'd never seen the show. So it was like the idea of the show was like, in a way, way bigger than the actual show. Yeah, it kind of became a meme, but it, but it was less about kind of investigating human behavior and more about vanity in this weird way. It was like this idea that you, this tiny sliver of your private life could be excised and then broadcast to the world. Um, and that idea, that idea would get away from Alan Funt and it, it would go all over the world and then it would come right back and bite him in the butt in this really funny and strange way. What, what happened? Well, okay, it starts like this. Hi there. Hi, how are you? Good, come on in. Hi. We'll start the story with this woman. Oh, are we on now? Marilyn Funt. Uh, the ex-wife of Alan Funt. And we're on the, do you want me to start where we're on the plane? Okay. So it's February 3rd, 1969. New York Airport. That's Marilyn Funt's daughter, Alan Funt's daughter, Juliet Funt. My mom, my dad, my baby brother and I are on a flight straight flight to Miami. And I'm about one and a half, so me, I don't have any personal recollection of it. But she says she knows this story because it's like family lore. So we were in first class and we're on the flight. A largely uneventful flight. For about the first 20 minutes. Maybe an hour, who knows? They're about 100 miles or so offshore and, you know, they get their meals, they go to the bathroom. And all of a sudden, a man stood up in the back of the flight and he took out a knife 
and he put it to the throat of one of the flight attendants and he walked her all the way down the center aisle and into the cockpit, passing every passenger on the flight. I did hear noises which were a little bit different in the back. That's Fred Weaver? Retired Eastern Airlines pilot. He was one of the flight crew, and uh, next to him... Yes, sir. ...co-pilot Lowell Miller. They were expecting breakfast. You know, I hear the knock on the door, and I just open the door. And I turned around to see who it was. There she is. The flight attendant. With the hijacker behind her with the knife up against her throat. He was agitated, saying, uh, Cuba, Cuba. He also was saying that his friend had a bomb in the back of the airplane. I knew right then. I said, "Uh uh-oh, here we go. The stewardess was walking around, talking with all the passengers, asking them if anybody knew how to speak Spanish. That's Jim Zack. He was back in coach. He was 11 years old at the time. I didn't think much of it until... uh, until the announcement came on the uh, loudspeaker. The pilot gets on and says, Ladies and gentlemen, ladies, ladies and, and gentlemen, gentlemen, we have some gentlemen up here that want to go to Cuba, so we're going to Havana. And then came the part of the story that I've been told was the waiting, the frozen, silent, staring at each other, waiting portion. But then this one woman... A few rows away. ...began to recognize my father. And she began to look and look back and forth to other folks and point a little bit, and there was a slow building of her certainty. And then... All of a sudden, she bolted up. ...and said... Wait a second. We are not being hijacked. It's a candid camera stunt. I'm quoting him. The plane went absolutely crazy. Everyone started laughing. People began cheering. Oh, and look who's here. He's pulling one of his stunts. Stamping their feet. And the tension dripped off of them. Everyone's so relieved. People were lined up with their air sickness bags to get autographs from my father. (laughs) So then they relaxed. And through all of this, my dad is begging. No, no, it's not me. I'm not involved. We are being hijacked. And they said, come on, Alan. We know it's you. (laughs) So Alan Funt is trying to persuade people. He's not getting any purchase. He sees uh, behind him, he sees a priest. (laughs) Right. He runs over to the priest. And said, Father, will you please help me convince these people? Tell them this is no joke. This is not a stunt. That maniac is for real. And what does the guy say? You can't get me, Alan Funt. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you don't. Are we supposed to see a guy with, with a cleric with a little collar and everything? Oh, no, you don't, Alan Funt. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Meanwhile, where is the hijack? Uh, terrifying people up in the cockpit. Oh, yeah, he stayed in the cockpit. But eventually, at some point, he hears this kind of commotion from first class. And so he does open the door. And he pokes his head out. And... Everybody begins to applaud and applaud and applaud. (laughs) We're not totally sure about that last detail. Might be an embellishment. But what seems clear is that around this time, Alan Funt is starting to feel kind of trapped. He'd been so successful at bugging the backstage, at mussing up the line between private and public and real life and showbiz that he 
couldn't, when he needed to, he couldn't reassert that clear line. I was worried that he was going to come up with some idea to try to mitigate the situation and deal with it. Actually, what she says ended up happening was he got so frustrated that he decided to just deal with the hijackers himself. Yes. So he starts formulating a plan. To grab the guy and knock him to the floor, and my mother's saying, Don't you do anything! You idiot, I have two babies on this plane. Leave it alone! Sit down. Oh, so he's going to be like Zorro. Yes. Apparently the flight attendants had to tell him to sit down. Like, what happens now? Well, you you took it to the point where now the plane is landing in what I in guess Cuba. the people in the plane think is Florida. People in the front of the plane know right. it's Cuba. No, it's Cuba, correct. When we taxied into the terminal. We're greeted as the plane is opened by Cuban military officers. I saw a Cuban soldier. He had a gun in his hand and he had bandoliers, you know, with lots of bullets on it. And they encircled the airplane. And it seems at this point, everyone on the plane, for maybe the first time, was like, oh. Everybody really got it. That it was a hijacking That was finally the reveal, just really late. And the story goes, when they're getting off the plane, when these Cuban soldiers are escorting them off the plane, he was standing at his seat. And through a twisty aspect of human psychology, all the passengers were filing down the aisle past him. They began to take their feelings out on him. And they became angry at him. And each one of them had sort of their own grab bag of curses for him. As if he had tricked them, as if he had set them up in some way. And the last person in that line... Turned to my father and said... Smile my ass. (laughs) That did happen. (laughs) Smile my ass was a closing remark on the whole business. Smile my ass. To me, the meaning of this scene is that here's a man who he has helped create a situation where people in some kind of peril don't know that they're in peril, that they've been blinded by the device that he created. It suggests that's the beginning of something blurry, which didn't used to be as much. You know, it's funny, like when I hear that plane scene, it's like, I'm almost nostalgic for that kind of confusion, because what we have now is, like, actually way more confusing, I think. Yeah, because we all have these cameras, so we're always taking these candid pictures of ourselves, but, like, obviously in theory they're candid, but they're not really candid, because we've taken, like, four of them, and the one we choose, we put a filter on, and... What I think it's interesting nowadays is what Jacob Smith talks about as being interesting, which is that... uh, That's producer Matt Keelty again. He was sort of off mic as we were hashing this out. Now what becomes fun to look at isn't looking for people and the faces they make when they find out that they're on camera. It's like poking and pulling apart people who know know that they know that they're on camera. Like what I do when I read people's Facebook pages and Twitter is like I'm I'm trying to figure out what they were thinking when they crafted that sentence. And how they were trying to represent themselves and present themselves to the world. You're trying to figure out what Um, part of that post is real. Yeah, exactly. Huh. Well, what he's really saying is that is that everyone who becomes an Alan Funt and the and the people on the plane, like it, the confusion is very basic. Like if you're going to go on Facebook, then you're a little bit of an Alan Funt. If you're going to go on Twitter, if you're going to do that, then you're producing these shows. Then if you're actually trying to figure out how the other people are reacting to your, to, uh, how you read them or how they're reading you. Yeah, then you're a little bit like you're stuck on the plane because you don't know what's real and what show. Yeah. 
in a way, if you split Alan Front in half as both the showman and the audience, now everyone is in the showman and the audience, like both parts. Yeah. It's like I think we're Alan Funting ourselves. Yeah. Enormous thanks to our producer, Latif Nasser. Also co-producer Matt Keelty. And a special thanks to... The Funt family. They couldn't have been more accommodating and more generous. Also Jim Zack and the Eastern Airlines Employee Association. And that's it. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krolwich. Thanks for listening. Start of message. Hey, this is Juliet Funt reading the credits. Hello, this is Jacob Smith from Northwestern University. Hi, my name's Jim Zack, and I was asked to read you the credits text, so here we go. Uh, Radio Lab is produced by Jad Abumrad. Our staff includes Brenna Farrell, David Gable, Dylan Keith, Matt Keelty, Robert Krolwich, Andy Mills, Latif Nasser, Kelsey Padgett, Ariane Wack, Molly Webster, Soren Wheeler, and Jamie York. With help from Simon Adler, Alexandra Lee Young, Abigail Keel, and Alexandra Brennan. Our fact checkers are Eva Dasher and Michelle Harris. That's it. Okay. Smile. You're on Radio Lab. End of message.